Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me, and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey there, friends. I hope that wherever you're listening today, that you're doing all right and that you're remembering that God is near no matter the burdens that you carry. My guest today has great wisdom for us in discovering and knowing that God is near, to know that He is the healer and He is the restorer of life. Lecrae is our guest today, and I have honestly scored major cool points with my kids for having Lecrae on the happy hour. I want to tell you this. Recently, he posted on Instagram and he said, healthy trees don't grow overnight. Neither do healthy people. Invest in yourself, you guys. Lecrae in this interview shares about how his personal life spun into chaos and how he was forced to face the buried impact of the unhealed wounds of sexual abuse, physical trauma, addiction, and depression that threatened to tear it all apart. He talks about this in his newest book, I am restored how I lost my religion, but found my faith. And it comes out on October 13th, but you can pre-order it now. Along the way, he realized the wounds we all carry have the potential to be unlikely guides to healing and freedom for ourselves and others. With vulnerable honesty, he and I look at the personal and public spaces that sadly hurt us so often. Those spaces could be culture, politics, family, church, personal failure. And Lecrae reminds us that learning to let go and forgive is the birthplace for the life of creativity and freedom God has for us. Guys, I'm not sure if you've heard, but I now host another podcast with my husband, Aaron. Our new show is called On the Other Side. The feedback we've gotten has been so incredibly encouraging to us, and we cannot wait to keep bringing listener stories of lives on the other side of triumph and pain and wilderness and dedication. We believe stories change the world. I say that all the time. We really believe it, and we want to share them so that our lives as listeners, as hearers of stories might all be changed. If you want to learn more about this new endeavor that we have of the On the Other Side podcast, and you want to subscribe to the show, you can text O-T-O-S. It stands for on the other side to 55444 and you'll get all the details sent directly to your phone. Yes, it's that easy. Just text OTOS to 55444. Okay, friends, here is my conversation with Lecrae. Hey, Lecrae, welcome to the happy hour. Glad to be here. I am glad to be here. I do need to let you know that um, I have scored some major, major mom points just by the fact that I'm going to take a picture and be like, kids, look who I was chatting with today. I have three boys who love your music. So it's an honor to be here with you. That's right on. I'm always glad to to make parents cooler. (laughs) Thank you so much. I told you before the show that I'm friends with Derek Minor, a friend of yours. And when he was on the show, I became cooler automatically to my kids. So if I can just keep having having, like all of you and your friends on, I'm going to be the coolest mom in town. That's what we live for. That's what we live for. You know what I mean? Well, I'm glad to be chatting with you today. You have a book called I Am Restored that comes out in about a month from when the show airs. And am I correct? This is your second book? Second book. 
second book. All right. Um, you live in Atlanta. If anyone does not know who you are, will you just introduce yourself real quick for the two people that don't know who Lecrae is? Yeah, no, no, not at all. Um, yeah. So, uh, Lecrae, that's that's what I go by. I am a musical artist. I am an actor. I am an activist. I run a independent label called Reach Records. We've been doing that for like 15 years. And um, I'm just a communicator. And uh, whether it's music, whether it's film, whether it's books, I want to communicate and, man, enlighten people and use my voice to be a catalyst for change and, uh, and kingdom values wherever I go. You are doing that for a while. I can see that from just reading your book and watching what your life over the last couple of years. I want to talk a lot about what you wrote in this book, but I, ha- I want to ask you a couple of music stuff questions first. Yeah. You started Reach Records in 2004. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, a hot minute ago. Yes. I was 12 years old. <laughs> you were 12. I was 12. <laughs> so that was great. Yeah. It was a long time ago. You talk a lot in your book about the music industry and how as an artist you found a lot of your respect there and you found your voice a lot in you know communicating and rapping how has that industry changed for you over the years of starting you know 12 years old when you started reach records to where you are now how has that changed just with our country with our lives with industry with music all that kind of stuff oh man so much has changed i mean obviously you know, there was a time when we were not as accessible as artists. And so there was no social media. You only got to hear from artists on their their albums and their projects. So you really paid attention closely to what was happening there. And then on top of that, we didn't know what was going on around the world as quickly. You know what I mean? Because there was no social media to inform us about what was. So globalization wasn't as big there was no streaming. There was just the influx of access to everything that people have right now. There's so much noise everywhere. And I think that affects the music industry from a standpoint of like, it's hard for voices to cut through and say what needs to be said. It's also hard to just fight up against all of the noise that's going on around us in this world. And uh, so that's, that's one of the biggest things I noticed. You know, I think it's interesting how you said, you know, when this started, there was no social media. You heard from artists when they released an album or maybe when they were on tour doing their stops before they released an album. And then other than that, it was just like, who? I don't even know because we didn't hear from anybody besides people we did life with. How has that been awesome for you? And how has that been difficult for you that now you do have this constant access to your followers, to your listeners? I'm sure that's amazing. I'm sure that's also difficult. Yeah, I, I say it all the time. No one in the world is deserving. It's, it's like artists and public figures. They're not deserving of all of that praise or all of that criticism. So you have an influx of praise and criticism coming at you every five seconds. And that can really warp your perspective of who you are and your identity. The The awesome part, though, is that you have the opportunity to express who you are on a consistent basis and allow people to have access to you as much as you want. And so those who really want to understand who you are can really do that. So that's the tough part is people kind of get to hide behind the computer and treat you like an object, objectify you. But then other people get access to somebody that they really feel like they can relate to and, and, and want to connect with. I love it. And I have no doubt that some of that, even that fame and people knowing you and having that access to you has led to a lot of the journey that you talk about in your book with walking through. I mean, the subtitle of your book is how I lost my religion, but found my faith. 
wonderful subtitle because I'm like, oh, what happened? Let me get to the end of this book and see what's going on here. But you talk a lot. You say this in your book. You say, I've learned this simple truth. We can face our past willingly or our lives will force us to face it. It's really that simple. We can choose to go down the valley of the shadow of death that is filled with our shame and trauma, or we can drown in our dysfunction. The choice is not easy, but it's painfully clear. So for you, Lecrae, what was that past that you had to face, whether you chose to face it or your life's like, we're about to face this no matter what you want to think? What was that for you? Oh my gosh, what wasn't it? (laughs) You know, there's so many traumas that, I think in the world, there's like eight major traumas and I've experienced five of them. So you've mm-hmm. got sexual abuse, you've got physical abuse, you've got uh, car accidents, you've got, uh, my goodness, I'm just thinking of my own personal journey, you know, dealing with abandonment and fatherlessness, dealing with drug addiction in my family and uh, and just the odds being stacked up against me in so many ways. My perspective of what it meant to be a man, uh, let alone a black man, was just so warped. And so I had to fight against all of those particular things. And I was a stuffer. I was not a person who dealt with issues. I was just taught to plow through and pretend like they didn't happen. And then when those issues come to the surface, you've got to deal with them because otherwise you'll look for a way to some kind of coping mechanism instead of dealing with the issues and getting through on the other side, a better person. Can you expand for me just a little bit? You said, and, and I know the answer to this a little bit because you talk about it in your book, but you talk about how you had this struggle of what does it mean to be a black man? Like, what does that actually mean? And you told us already that you grew up without your dad and you've met him a handful of times, but what is it? what did it mean for you in that journey? What does it mean to be a black man? And just full disclosure for you, you don't know this about me because we just met, uh, three of my children are adopted and three of them are black. So I'm I'm sitting here taking your wisdom. So what what was that journey like for you? You know, when you say... I have to qualify that, you know, for those people who probably don't understand, like, what's the difference? Black man, white man is a man. Right. But, you know, we're not talking about a skin color, even though the skin color plays into it. We're talking about a cultural construct. And so to be black means you're more than likely born into a particular culture or a way of society, or at least there's the idea that you're supposed to. And so whether you want to or not, people are going to put you in that category and say, well, this is what life should look like for you because you're black. Right. And so I had to process that for me growing up. Most of the black men that I saw around me, they were not doctors. They were not lawyers. They were gang members. They were, you know, drug dealers or they were just like, you know, your average everyday construction worker type of individuals. They had faced a lot of historical trauma. So I wasn't, I didn't see myself in any of these particular figures. And so I didn't know who I was supposed to be. And, and then, you know, you have these white men that I talk about later on in my life and, you know, trying to follow their trajectory spiritually, but then there's some cultural barriers that I'm like, wait, I can't do that. So for me, the struggle was one, just what does it mean to be a man? Because I'm having some poor ideals of that. And then two, How do you function in society, particularly a a white dominated society as a black man? And what are the perspectives that people have of me and how do I navigate those? And and what does that mean? And so learning my history, learning my culture, learning some things about my ancestry was very helpful, was very necessary. That's one aspect of black people that is unfortunate. Our kind of culture and history has been stripped from us. We just know slavery and then this. So we don't have like you know, our ancestors in England and knights and 
you know, royalty and, you know, squash bucklers. We just have like these pictures of us in the jungle wearing no clothes and then all of a sudden we're slaves. And so we're reaching and trying to understand who we were, who we are in this current society that we're in. You know, that's interesting. My family just had the opportunity to go on the show with Emmanuel Acho. He's doing these conversations called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. And so our family was on it and Emmanuel asked one of my kids, or he might've asked my husband and I, how are we helping our kids keep their black culture? Mm-hmm. And I don't even remember if it made the show or what we answered, but the thing that I got, I left that conversation with Emmanuel and I looked at my husband in the car and I went, are we doing anything? Like, well, what does this actually mean? And that was the question I had most people ask me. What did he mean about keeping your black culture? And the more my husband and I thought about it, obviously we have a million miles to go, but it was the things that you're just talking about. Like teaching our kids, you know, correct history, you know, talking about those kind of things. For our kids who were born in Haiti, talking about the country of Haiti, letting them express themselves in a way, you know, rap music's not my favorite, but it is happens to be my son Amos's favorite. And that's awesome, you know? And so just allowing them to be them, even if they're in a majority white culture. And so here's what I'm thinking. I'm like, dude, if Lecrae was having to figure that out, how am I supposed to figure this out for my kids? <laughs> like, oh my gosh, Jesus, help us is what I got to yeah. say about that. Oh man, it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to be a struggle no matter who you are when so much of your history is not on the forefront of yeah. what's you know, dominant and prominent. So it takes more work, takes more digging, more intentionality. That leads me to what I want to ask you about next is, you know, it's, there's this idea and I read about this in my friend Latasha's book about this, you know, this common hit, like a, don't she call it common history? Like where we don't, there's not the same history. So we're not learning the same thing, black people and white people or everybody in America really is learning a narrative like you just said, mm-hmm. just showed up one day, here are slaves, slavery ended, you know, after the Civil War and everything's been good, you know? Mm-hmm. And when Christopher Columbus came, him and the Native Americans, they just had dinner together and everybody was happy, you know? Like that is the history that's taught and it's not true. And so have you journeyed through kind of not figuring out, but maybe uncovering some things like you talked about learning this, who you are? How has that affected you as a person and what you do in life and ministry? And I want to jump in. You can kind of lead us there, but then I want to jump into a lot of things you talked about when you felt like you were loved for your opinions, but not your essence. So you can start us out and then I'll get us there. Currently, so just using myself as an example, I grew up in a in a neighborhood that was dominated by a particular gang. And so a lot of my family members were a part of this gang. And you tend to grow up and feel ashamed that this is your past or this is your history because in dominant society, it's so frowned upon. Like, oh, those gang members, you know, and typically these are black people, right? And the the problem is that <laughs> there are many other, there's Italians and Irish people who have a similar history It's just that they have overcome and now they can look back on their gangster ancestors and almost say, yeah, it's like, I mean, that's not what I do, but it's a part of my family narrative. Mm -hmm. And it's looked at as, it's kind of just, yeah, you know what happened? You know what I mean? Slave, you know, yeah, my ancestors own slaves, but that's not me. You know, I've moved on. And so the narrative that I think a lot of black people hear is that we don't have any, there's not a dignified past There's no sense of dignity historically. And even in the current situation we're in, there's nothing to really hold on to of dignity. You know, we don't have a healthy past or even a a healthy present. And with intentionality and with work, 
you begin to learn about so many figures, historical figures that are amazing. And you learn a different narrative. So uh, Nat Turner, who historically you see him as this like rebel who went against society and was a killer and killed kids and did this terrible thing. And But if you look at it from a different vantage point, he was a slave. He was kidnapped. He was enslaved. His family was enslaved. So he was trying to be a liberator. And when we look at the Americans breaking free from England, we look at that as liberators, Boston Tea Party. But when we look at the black community, we say, sheesh, what a Mm. terrible guy doing all that. That's why he ended up getting lynched and hung. So what that's done for me is it's made me realize that everyone looks at a narrative from different vantage points. And I have to be okay with the dominant narrative not being the most accurate and pushing through that. Because that's honestly what Jesus did as well. He looked at and he said, the narrative you guys have is all wrong and you're going to kill me for this, but I've got to be faithful and be honest. And I can go into some other levels that I could talk for hours on it. But I guess the main point that I would say is that for me, I'm able to press forward because I know that the truth is usually the least accessible vantage point, the, the least ventured into And that encourages me and inspires me to just keep going because it's not something that everyone is exposed to. I think that's important for everyone listening that to really investigate and look deeper than what we've heard for our whole lives. You talk in your book about after following Jesus, you developed a deep disdain for the black church and began to find your home with the reformed tribe. And that felt good. You enjoyed their thinking, their theology. And you even say in your book that you became, these are your words, not mine, the safe secret obsession for white suburban Christian kids. And eventually you began to feel like you were the slave who'd been accepted into the master's house. You said your followers wanted your theology, your rhymes, your concert experience, but not your blackness. And I read those and I felt so sad for you of what that inner turmoil must have felt like. When in your career, and maybe there was a certain point, maybe it was kind of blurry because it was over time. When did you start to feel like that you were being loved for your opinions, but not for your essence as a black man and everything you brought to the table there? Yeah, I mean, we knew internally. So what would tend to happen is even from the stage, you know, like myself, Derek Miner, some of the other artists, from the stage, we knew like, you don't really like rap music. Mm. You just like the thing that I said within this music. And, And so we just knew there were certain songs that we couldn't do because it was too black it was too rap it was too like if unless we made it accessible for a a white audience you know put some edm in it or something like that we knew like it wasn't gonna be fully accepted but that's what we loved so we loved it we just felt like well they don't love what we love they just love what we bring to them so we knew that do you ever feel gross about that i think it was just kind of it is what it is yeah just kind of like man this is the the scapegoat, the sacrificial lamb for being able to survive out here. You know what I mean? It was just kind of like, hey, this is, there's no other way we can do this. And there's so many layers and levels where this played out, like so many places where it's like, oh, this is us being black and they don't like that. So we've got to figure out how to switch this up. It's called code switching. And I think the moment when it really hit me, when it hit me in a really intense way, was when Trayvon Martin was killed and I spoke out about that. And I just, I didn't realize that, you know, white Christians had a particular propensity for 
conservatism or nationalism or Republican perspectives. I had no, I just thought everybody loved Jesus and whatever the Bible said, we were all going to, and I was like, oh, this kid got killed and he shouldn't have gotten killed. This is messed up. And the backlash was like, whoa, what is happening right now? So I said, I thought maybe I said it wrong. So let me say it again in a different, different way. <laughs> right. And, and it was even worse the second time around. And I think that's when I realized, wow, you can't hear me, you know, unless I'm saying something that you want that agrees with your perspective. Yeah. yeah. That's sad. And we have seen that even more in the past four years. I mean, I think, would you lose followers on a day like 10,000 followers in a day? 30. 30,000 followers in one day. Not because you said, like, I'm going to go kill somebody. I serve Satan. Jesus wasn't even really God. He's just a prophet. No. You just spoke the truth. You mentioned that you knew your role at these places when you had a predominantly white audience. And then this happens. And then Trayvon Martin was at the end, you know. What made you start going, I don't know if I can do this anymore in this environment with this crowd. Now, again, in your book, you talk, you went through a huge crisis of faith, and I'm assuming this is where it started. Right. Yeah. It's where the crisis of faith started, and I... I think I I didn't have any other context for what it meant to be a Christian. So I thought that this was it. Like these people that I, you know, that come to my concerts, these pastors that I listen to, this was the epicenter of Christianity. So I didn't, everything else was clearly wrong. So if these people don't get it, then God must be wrong. Mm -hmm. So there must not be a God because nowhere that I feel comfortable was comfortable anymore. And so I thought, well, then this is, I don't have another option. And I started with trying to see, okay, God, who are you? And a problem I kept having was every time you begin to do a search or a, an inquisition of faith online, you're going to be met with a white author. It's usually going to be a white man. Like 90% of the time, you know, is God real? White author. Is Jesus real? White man. It was almost like maddening because I could not move outside of the perspective of a white male to process who God was. So I had to just leave the country. I just went to Egypt just so I can say, okay, can a non-white American Mm. tell me something about the Bible? And this was in the midst of you feeling like, oh, everybody who liked me and applauded me and wanted me on their stages and their churches, in my opinions, has bailed. Right, right, exactly. So I was like, I don't trust these voices anymore. I can't trust these voices because they've all bailed on me. They haven't supported me. They haven't said, hey, man, we understand. They've just kind of been like, oh, I don't know what this guy's doing. And so that was a struggle for me. And and then that, that began to open me up to see what was happening. That's when I began to realize, oh, there's a thing called white supremacy, which I just did not have any idea about, which is not like people walking around in KKK masks. It's just- Which is what people think. Right. Yeah. That's not white supremacy. White supremacy, I mean, that's an aspect of it, but that's not what people mean when they say that. What they're saying is when you get on a plane and you're looking for a movie, generally it's going to be white people in the movie. When you look at all the biggest directors, they're going to be white people. When you look at who runs the biggest companies, they're going to be white people. That is supremacy. That's who is running things. So I was just so inundated with that, that I had to figure out how do I see God without a white male telling me who God is. And that was the journey that I had to go on. Where'd you find in Egypt? Because I don't think you wrote about that. Yeah. 
Egypt was amazing. So on one one aspect of it, everywhere I went got bombed later. So that was crazy. Just like what is happening right now? But God was with us. But two things I found. One, I found a lot of Egyptian scholars, Christian scholars who wrote books. And I had never heard of these people a day in my life. I couldn't find their books when I got back to the States. They're not on Amazon, but they're over there. And two, a woman who was a historian, an Egyptian historian who was not a Christian, did not know the Bible whatsoever. Uh, The Bible was not a reference guide for her Egyptian history, told me about a Pharaoh letting all of the Israelites go. And I was like, so you mean like in the Bible? She's like, I don't know the Bible. I just know history. And I said, okay, that's enough for me to believe. That <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in. <laughs> Let's begin this process all over again. So oh my goodness. Dope. Okay. So some people might be listening and I've been on this journey over the past 15 years of parenting my boys who are black and my daughter as well. But you just mentioned something I think is really important about how you were looking and everywhere you looked was written by a white man. Mm-hmm. Tell us, tell the people, what have you found? Who have you found? Who are you listening to? What does that look like now? Man, I mean, with some intentionality, you'll find them. And the reason why these these authors are not prominent is because the systems are dominated by white males. And some of it is not intentional. It's not trying to keep these voices out. It's just familiarity. We're just familiar with these group of voices. So Vincent Bantu, phenomenal scholar, leader out of St. Louis. You've got Esau McCauley phenomenal thinker, a brilliant mind. Eric Mason out of Philadelphia, Carl Ellis, who's in Chattanooga now in Atlanta, you know, Amisho Baraka, man, Francis Grimke. I mean, James Cone. There's so many views and thinkers now. A lot of people have, especially conservative Christians, have issues with some of these writers because they feel like they're leaning to the liberal side of things. But I'm a firm believer that whether conservative or liberal, there are some truths that I can gain from you. So I don't throw people away just because they may be on one extreme end. I feel like everybody has something to offer and we can figure that out. I agree. I agree. My new phrase is these days, which is my assistant friend, Lindsay, she always kind of shakes her head when I say it because I, like, I feel like it's being mean to people. But here's what I want to say to people. Use your brain. Like, use your brain when you read something. (laughs) Like, you don't have to agree with everything that's in it. But you can use your brain that God gave you. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here, and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike, and it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. 
You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music. Just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. All right, now, racism in the church. You said this, which I believe to be true in your book. You said the American church was late to the party in condemning racism. Uh, it's 2020. It's been crazy year. I mean, you know, crazy, crazy year. I was talking with a friend yesterday and we were talking about the fact that we think, and you can give me your opinion on this as well, that we've seen more lamenting by the church than we have in years and years and years, which made me think about your statement when I read it, that you said the American church is late to the party. Like it has been quiet. Two questions. Number one, do you see that at all? Do you see lamenting? Do you see hope? And then my second question is, what's been the hardest for you to endure? Would that be the lack of condemning it, the lack of nothing, or maybe some of the like hateful things that you've heard from self-proclaim in their Twitter name, I love Jesus people? What would be the worst or the hardest maybe? I think it's phases, right? So depending on where you are, on the spectrum of healing and process. If you, like myself, were so inundated in a white dominated space, then your first lament is the silence. You know what I mean? Your first lament is how can you say you love the same God I love and not see anything and not say anything? That's your first lament. And then phase two, when you realize that this space is not the equivalent of the church. The church is way bigger 
in a white dominated space. When people say, oh, I'm sick of the church. I always say, have you been to a Korean church? Right. You sick of the African church? You're sick of the Hispanic mm-hmm. church? Because I, I mean, when you say that, what are you saying? So they're saying they're sick of their experience with the church. So once I knew that this was not the primary perspective, then it became the hateful things because it was just like so ignorant. It was like, now I'm aware of so much. Your silence doesn't bother me anymore. I'm just like, well, you're clearly just ignorant to this. And man, may God be with you because I hate to see you when the Lord returns and you have to deal with that reality. But then the hateful stuff is like, yo, just be quiet. Mm. Like, just be quiet. You don't have to keep these ignorant things inside because it's making you look worse by spewing this hateful ignorance out that, and most of the time it really is not, um, no one is trying to elicit that or warrant that. Right. So I posted a picture of, uh, Stacey Abrams. I met Stacey Abrams who was running for governor of Georgia. Georgia. Mm -hmm. And my post was about how my daughter gets to see in educated black woman running for office. And I was glad my daughter could see that. But Christians wanted to cannibalize that and politicize it because of where she stands in the political system and attack me for that and make it a race thing. Like there's some great Republican people that women that are running, but they're not black women, right? And so you're trying to cannibalize me and elicit these hateful racial commentary when I'm just saying specifically, regardless of her political views, this is an, a black woman who's beaten the odds and is, is trying something daunting that my daughter needs to see. And, uh, and that becomes some of the issue. It's hard. And, you know, we're in an election year, which who did I hear say this? I was listening to a show yesterday. Like it was on NPR or something. They're like, if you don't want to deal with this. Oh, they were talking about mail-in ballots, which is we're not talking about that today. But they were talking about how crazy the election is going to be. And they're like, listen, if you don't want to deal with this, you need to get on a plane on November 2nd and not come back till January 1st. And I was like, oh, dear Lord, 2020 is going to be hard. But that is some of the difficulty that I see people holding that tension of not being able to hear and listen because they're so laser focused on one thing. And it almost comes, look, I feel like it's almost a fear thing. Like I need to hold so tightly to this because I don't know what life looks like without it. And I think like you said, that's going to become very difficult for people to hold that, to not be able to hold the tension. We have to be able to hold the tension. Yes, And that's difficult. I have one more question to ask you about church and racism. Here it is. You said in your book, Does white evangelicalism care about black bodies? What's your answer? I would say no. White evangelicalism does not care about black bodies. And here's the reason why I say no. The reason why I say no is because they weaponize other things when issues within the black community are brought up. So when racism is brought up, they'll weaponize aspects of like they'll weaponize abortion or they'll weaponize black on black crime, whatever that is as you know things to fight against racist accusations versus caring so much about black bodies that they're stepping into these spaces that they have usually weaponized to do something about it so instead of saying when i say man i'm sick of police brutality they'll say well what about abortion mm-hmm. and i'll say well well what are you doing about that you know well what about black on black crime well what are you doing about that Because if you care about this issue, then you would be involved in the communities where these things are happening. I'm involved in these communities. 
So why aren't you? And that's when the challenge, you know, the saying is when I feed the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they're poor, they call me a communist. And I would say, well, why are you not involved? And why are these people in the positions that they're in? And uh, that would lead me to say, you don't care. Now, I don't mean that as a sweeping statement. Obviously, there's white evangelicals who do care. But I would say there is too many that don't. Well, I think that that has risen up to the top here in 2020, if we're going to be honest about seeing that. Well, you know, and when you say, you know, I hate police brutality, it always frustrates me when someone would say, well, what about abortion? My question is, well, do you hate police brutality? Like, that's what we're talking about here. <laughs> Why? That's the question. And so it's so difficult. And I've had so many hard conversations with my kids, especially my boys, about all of these things. And I'm, man, I'm just so broken. And thank you for speaking out. Thank honestly. I know that like you get tired and you're weary because my black friends here, they tell me these things. I'm tired. I'm weary. And you have much more to talk about than just this. But you wrote about in your book. So I'm like, he's here to talk about it. Another thing you talk about that I was so thankful for as well was your battle with depression. And you said standing in the spotlight is exhausting. Standing in the spotlight without being healthy is dangerous. And you talk a lot in your book about that danger that your life kind of unraveled into. When was, what was your wake up call that this depression was overtaking your life? When it did, <laughs> when it overtook my life. You know, I had a lot of signs, but first of all, if you don't know the signs, you don't know to read them. So, you know, when you're a social drinker, you're not thinking that your drinking is picking up. You know what I mean? And so you're not thinking about that. You're just thinking, yeah, my drink is picking up. But I, I mean, you're just like, oh, yeah, I can. My tolerance level is going up. You're not thinking like I am coping. You know, you're not thinking that. And when you are, you know, constantly ruminating and meditating on all the negativity that's going on and you don't see that as a sign, mm. um, when your attitude is that more of cynicism and pessimism, than optimism or like you, there's no hopeful perspectives, that's a sign. I didn't read any of those signs. So I kept fueling my depression. And, um, and then when you add shame to the cocktail, now you're done. So that's kind of what it was for me. It was once I kind of threw God away, I said, oh, the gloves are off. I'm just going to live. And I incurred you know, I started racking up the mileage of things that were out of character for me. You know what I mean? It's just like you're racking up the mileage and you can tell yourself, like I told myself for so long, I mean, what's wrong? If there's no God, then what is wrong? You know, is it wrong to pop these pills right now? Is it wrong to get belligerent drunk tonight? Is it wrong, you know, to be a glutton or indulge in pornography? What is wrong? You know what I mean? And so I started racking up the shame mileage and I woke up one morning and it was like, it wasn't a dark day. It wasn't like, I feel sad today. It was, I am incapable of feeling joy at all. Mm. Like I couldn't laugh. I could watch the funniest movie I've ever seen in my life. No, like nothing. Mm. And I knew something was wrong. It was like, oh, this is weird. It was like a twilight zone. So I'd entered what is called a clinical depression. And I thought it would go away, you know, a couple of days, two days, three days, four days, nine, 10, two months. I am tripping. And so uh, it was at that point in time I realized I got to get some help. You talk a little bit about the struggle with letting your friends in 
And I think that's a struggle with a lot of people in the world. And I can only imagine the struggle it would be with someone as this, you know, celebrity of not wanting to look weak, not wanting people to know that you can't do this. Were you continuing to live your everyday, go to work, be married, take care of my kids, text my friends life? Yeah, I was. And the problem for leaders is leaders think they have, they can figure everything out. And so I thought I could figure it out. And I thought I was too afraid to reveal the chinks in my armor, you know, mm-hmm. because I'm the one that's supposed to have it all together. I'm the one that's supposed to have the answers. I'm the one that's supposed to be on point. And I could not admit that I was failing drastically. So you begin to convince yourself of how to navigate this and how to process this. And listening to yourself is one of the most dangerous things you can do because you just tell yourself the most ridiculous things. You know, if you don't have other people to bounce these ideas off of, you just can believe some of the dumbest things possible. Um, And so that was my problem, was being too afraid to admit my weakness. One, you're afraid that people will turn their back on you and that they'll say, not you. And you've already had that happen to you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Trauma. So you're afraid of that. And then you're afraid of your worth, you know, diminishing and somehow you are a worthless individual. But the most healing thing, there's more healing in confession than suppression. So that is where my healing process began when I was just honest and transparent and could now work on the things that were going on in my life. That's good. So at this point, are you thinking and saying to your friends, you can come in, ask me anything, do anything. It's all on the table. All passwords. Here they are. You know, seven, 12 people having access to my social media accounts at all times. You know, hey, if we go out, I can't have a drink. You know, I'm just letting you know, don't like no matter what. You know, no drinks for me, you know, just transparent. And if there are slip ups or anything like that, immediately letting them know when the thought enters your mind, just let them know. And if you, you know, if you move past the thought, if desire becomes disobedience, I blew it, you know, so you can move forward and keep processing and grow through that process. There's so much like you can breathe in that kind of life where before I would imagine you felt suffocated. Anxiety out of the man. Yeah. Just constantly. What if, 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 what if. You said you had no private place to rest with your pain. People were expecting you to be at your best when you were at your worst. And man, I'm I'm sitting here listening to your words as like as a wife and a friend. My husband's, you know, a songwriter. And I'm just like, okay, okay, Jamie, like you can be on it. Like know him and know those signs and know what's happening. I want to ask you one last question before we end. The subtitle of your book is How I Lost My Religion But Found My Faith. What did you find in the midst of this whole journey? I found that, you know, religion is... It's sneaky because religion is when you are trying to win the approval of God through your works. Mm. Faith is when you know you're approved of. So you act out of that approval and love. And so the sneaky part is you can be so devoted to your prayer, your Bible study your speaking and all of those things. But what you're really devoted to is your devotion. You're not devoted to how devoted God is to you. So I'm devoted to doing the right things. I'm not devoted to the person. And there's a big difference because if I, you know, do all the right things at home, I took out the trash, I washed the dishes, I made up the bed and, you know, here's your kiss. I'm going through the motions doing the right things. But what if she, that's not what it's about. It's not, she needs something different than that from me. She, that's not what she needs is this repetition. She needs to know that I am so grateful 
that you are in my life, that I'm listening to you. I'm trying to serve you how you want to be served. I'm not just following rules. I'll say this too. If I knock on the door with some flowers and I say, here, honey, this is what I'm supposed to do for you. So I did it. <laughs> I'm sleeping on a couch. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm sleeping on the couch. Yep. But if I come home and I say, hey, you know what? I was just sitting at work and I was thinking like, man, I'm so blessed to have you in my life. So I bought these for you. That's devotion to the you're person. In. Yes, you're in. Yes, you're know in. You're in. I remember my husband and I've been married 19 years. Early in our marriage, he brought flowers home. And you know, you get at this car at the store, there's the card on there where you write on it, right? Well, he just left it blank and just gave me the flowers. And I would not feel that way today. But I had my feelings hurt so bad because I was like, you can't even write some nice words to me. Right, You're just going right, to hand right. me some flowers. It's kind of like that. Right, like, exactly. you got to do all the way. Yeah. That's what I was doing with God is just checking the boxes. And, um, and I was like, I'm done checking boxes. That doesn't make you feel alive. Um, what makes you alive is having a relationship, not religion. And so uh, faith is about a relationship with God and not about checking boxes. Which is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. Um, and your Egyptian friend has told us that the Pharaoh let most, that the people go. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Okay, last question I always ask people, what are you reading? What are you loving? What are you listening to? What are you loving these days? Yeah, I am really big into getting an Eastern Jewish perspective of the Bible and God. And so I am I'm reading a lot of Lois Tverberg, Sitting at the Feet of Jesus, of Rabbi Jesus, which has been phenomenal. I am listening to a podcast called Bema, which is a kind of a Jewish vantage point on understanding the scriptures. I am fortunate to be able to access a lot of the people that I mentioned who are great authors like Esau Macaulay. So I don't have to read his stuff. I just call him and talk to him for hours. So that's that direct access. Yeah, that's a blessing for me. And I'm also reading The Lost History of Christianity. Um, It's a great reference guide that just helps you see like Christianity did not start in Israel and then move to Europe. It's like there's so much in between. There's a whole Japanese history of Christianity that people just don't even have a clue about. So. What? What? America is not God's favorite place on the world, Lecrae? Is that what you're saying? What? Um, you also, you mentioned the podcast Ear Hustle in your book. Yeah. And I love that show love so it. much. Yeah, love it. That's, that's my shout out to Ear Hustle. Lecrae, thank you. Thank you for being an advocate. Thank you for speaking up. Thank you for being a phenomenal role model that I can point all of my children to. I That really means a lot to me as a mom. 
thank you for your voice and thank you for letting God resurrect that faith in you and not let you go because he doesn't let us go. So thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you, Jamie. It's awesome. Guys, don't forget, Lecrae has a new book out called I Am Restored, How I Lost My Religion But Found My Faith. It comes out October 13th, but you can pre-order it right now wherever you get books. Lecrae, thanks for this conversation. And again, thanks for the cool points you gave me. Today's show was edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper. The music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by Abigail Castell. The whole thing is organized and produced and all of the things by Lindsay Sweeney. Don't forget, if you want to hear more about our other podcasts on the other side, text OTOS to 55444. Guys, enjoy your week. Share the show with a friend. Have a happy hour. I'll see you guys on Wednesday with Brooke Ligertwood. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.